but she's on the mat. And that's all that matters is you got one more person on the mat because you created an environment that was open and fun and let people do things on their own term and you didn't force them to do it. And now that little girl, she's going to end up being a wrestler and she's going to love it. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time I spent wrestling, if it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast. This is your host, Ryan Warner. Our guest today is 2008 Olympian and three-time All-American from the University of Michigan, Go Blue, Andy Rovat. After Andy's run at the Olympics in 2008, he spent a year living and training in Russia. He learned their system, brought it back, and now he's a youth coach out in Texas. Always enjoy having Andy on and hearing his perspective both on coaching and parenting at the youth level. If you enjoy this episode, check out past episodes where Andy's been a guest on the show, episode 121 and episode 25. Andy also mentions an interview I did with Mike Barwis, And that's episode 125. Fan of the week goes to a recent Apple podcast review. Five-star review from 916 for life. Subject, great interviews. Love listening to the interviews on the podcast. Would love it if you could get an interview with Randy Baker. Thank you so much for leaving the review, 916 for life. I don't know Randy Baker, but always interested to hear about new potential guests. So thank you so much for leaving the five-star review and for listening to the show. Without further ado, let's give it up for the great Andy Rovat. Andy Rovat, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Man, I'm so excited to have you back on. You were one of our <laughs> first guests and now are like our uh, our main introduction horse, man. I can't tell you how many people you've you put me in touch with. It's uh it's been it's been awesome and uh yeah, man. How were the Big Tens? Uh, Big Tens were awesome. It was cool to get back to Ann Arbor. Saw a couple of buddies I haven't seen in a while. Herbert, Jake, Jake, and um, Stephen Fisher. Mainly just hung out with them. Saw a couple other guys I wrestled with. But no, the wrestling was awesome. The environment's It's so cool how, like, you can see, like, how the Big Ten Network has really influenced the championship. Because when I was wrestling, it was definitely not as many people as there are now. And it's really neat to see all the fans participating and the schools have more following and people are watching it online and on the big 10 network. And it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. So cool. And for folks who, who maybe aren't, don't know your story. When were you at Michigan? What were your years? Uh, 1998 to 2002. 
2002 and then Olympian in 08. But so you, so were you there when that weight cutting incident happened? That was my senior high school. And then that sparked the changes of the weigh-ins, which when I was a senior, there were 24 hours before my freshman year was the first year they went to one hour weigh-ins for dual meets, two hours for tournaments. Got it. Okay. And so you got to Michigan then, and I almost had your buddy on the podcast. Had we were going to reschedule it, but Gray Maynard was he there at the same time? Well, he was at no. I went to high school with Gray. Gray went to Michigan. Oh, he State. went to Michigan State. Duh, yeah, but, but you guys were saying that everybody confuses that. You know, everyone thinks we went to college together, high school together, but he, uh, yeah, he. I, I'm. It's going to get rescheduled for tomorrow. So who knows the order of when the episodes are released? But bottom line, can't wait to get him on. The guys, a savage, still in shape, dude. I, I shredded. Yeah, he's a freak. He owns a gym. <laughs> if anybody just wants to have that life, own a gym. You move all day long. Right. So he, man, you're saying Ed's team must have been crazy then. Yeah. So my my junior year at St. Ed's, we had six future NCAA All-Americans and one round of 12. So half, basically half our team was an All-American or fighting to be an All-American. So it was, uh, it was myself. Well, Yoshi was a senior. When I was a junior, Yoshi was a senior. He was a three-time at Penn. I was a three-time at Michigan. Gray was three-time at Michigan State. Kozicki was a one-timer at Michigan. Um, Mark Jane, I believe, was a two or three. I think three at Illinois. At and least, at, yeah. Uh, Kozik, or I already said Kozicki. Um, and then Bertine was a four-time All-American at Michigan, two-time champ. And then uh, Dolph Ziggler. Uh, Nick Namath was round of 12, I think, two or three times. Dude, those are those are some studs. So he was in that same weight class at NCAAs where St. Ed's had three All-Americans at 157, Gray, Yoshi, and Bertine. None of them wrestled each other, and Namath was round of 12 that year, and neither of those three wrestled Namath, which is crazy. All at 157. All at 157. <laughs> that is nuts. That might, that has to be a record for all Americans from a single high school at a weight. Yeah, it has to be. Has right? to be. That's crazy. Three, three all Americans and one one who lost in a butt round. That's insane. And none that, of them for each other. That's the even crazier stat. Yeah, I mean, especially this year, we look at some of the first round matchups. Like all the repeat matches, there's quite a few of them. But I mean, for guys from the same high school, not to overlap. So when you guys when you were in Ohio State, how many classes were there? Three. Three, same as it is now. Yeah. And you guys, was it actually that was the that's the Walsh years too though, right? Was Walsh yep. power powering through then too? Yeah. So my, um, they're actually making a documentary on it. Um, the Ed's Walsh uh, rivalry, uh, Ben Hada and and I think uh, uh, maybe Greenhall, the Sonny's son. I forget his name. Okay. Yeah, I Ben's know, come on before and he's talked about it, but I, I don't know if anyone else is doing it, but yeah, he uh yeah, yeah, I can't wait for it. it. I don't think he's doing it by himself, but he's doing it and um but no, that my so the reason I went to St. Ed's was my sister was going to Lake Catholic in a decent D2 school and um you know, so like uh you know, the Braxville coach Todd Haverdale, he he's, you know, he's got a great program at Braxville. He was at that school um I think Voinovich's son or dad went to that school a little older than me, but I remember watching him when I was a kid. 
the the Oklahoma State wrestler. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So I, I watched. So they went to Lake Catholic, but then I practiced with them as a seventh grader. Practiced part of the year as an eighth grader with them, and they still wanted me to practice with the freshmen for a third year in a row. And I wasn't able to wrestle varsity. So when I went to visit St. Ed's, that was the week of the Walsh Ed's match. ESPN was there filming the practice. Like, you know, it's like one and two in the country. And then I had this other school that's like, yeah, you can wrestle freshman next year. And I'm like, <laughs> are you kidding me? Like, that's not going to happen. And so I was like, man. I, and so that just drew me. The Ed's Walsh rivalry just drew me number one, number two in the country. And I didn't know anything about high school before that because there's no internet. You know, even being in Cleveland, it's not like I was you know, in tune with all what's going on at high school. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. know it was on Ed's team and all that stuff. Um, and so, so yeah, so I ended up just choosing Ed's was obviously the best decision I ever made. Dude, yeah. what a week to go there and check it out. Right? Yeah, it's crazy. Now in Ohio, is there like a very well-structured and organized middle school state tournament that the Catholic schools will pluck kids from? Well, no, now they now they have it. They, not when I was in. So like the, the craziest thing is, I didn't compete much my seventh grade year, competed very little my eighth grade year because I was 145 pounds. And when you get yeah, kids tournaments, there's not a lot of kids there. You mm-hmm. know, it's like but when you get to high school, it's like then you have four years of kids. And, um, you know, so I didn't even place at the city tournament of Cleveland at the CYO tournament. <laughs> like, I, lo- I lost twice at that tournament. And, um, you know, obviously you go through growing phases and you know your career goes up and down but like yeah man, I went from never not even placing in the city of Cleveland as an eighth grader and at that tournament another reason I went to St. Ed's was Joe Silvestro who you had on the podcast he was officiating that tournament came up to me and my dad and was talking to me and he's like no I know you're thinking about going to Ed's and you know this didn't go go well but blah, you know like he just talked to me and we had a great talk and that like set me up for at Ed's. And then like the very next year I went to the district tournament and I ended up losing to the state champ by a point and a state runner up by two points. So I didn't even qualify for state, but I went from not placing in the city of Cleveland to losing the top two guys in the state the very next year. And it's not like anything changed, you know, like dramatically, I just got in a better room and was, was able to get in a better groove of competing and mm-hmm. um, training, but um, it's just wild because it's like now as a kid's coach, as you see it as kids and they're like, they could lose one week and they're like, I'm never going to be good enough for college. It's like, you know, like everybody gets that attitude. Everyone has that hard time with their own mindset. And it's just like, man, like, I remember when I had that problem, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, even now, like as a coach, if you see a kid that goes like, like you said, you know, doesn't, doesn't win the city tournament. And then you're going to tell me in five years. He's headed to a D1 school, scholarship, All-American. It's like you you wouldn't even believe that, you know, and it's it's just good to hear these stories because I think kids put so much pressure on themselves and it's a little crazy sometimes. Yeah, especially when you have success, right? So, like, right now I'm training a kid. He's 11, just turned 12, actually, um, like last week or two weeks ago. And uh, he's not getting a move. And he's like, I'm never going to be good enough for college. And it's like, yeah, you're right. You're not good enough for high school, man. You're 12. You know. Like, <laughs> and he's like, I'm supposed to be good. And I'm like, no, no, that's what your old coaches told you. I never once told you you were good. Like, I just need you to learn the sport. Like, good will come later. You're 12. You don't need to be good right now. You need to be a student. Right. And it's like so many coaches put so much 
emphasis on these kids stuff it's just ridiculous and it's like then it's like you never have that ability to fail without questioning yourself you're like oh i won a state championship when i was a rookie and it's like where do you go from there if you lose yeah a lot of psychology and like there's a lot of things in our sport that are terrible for people right like your podcast is about how it changed your life but there's a huge subsect of people that it ruined their life huge and there's so many uh so many people we all know who are wrestlers who were you know the extreme kid in class and after wrestling they went down the path of like drugs or or crime and it's like that's a lot of people and uh you know, we don't hear from those guys so often unless they're able to turn around, but most don't, you know? Right. And you, you know, your experience coaching is many years coaching at the, at the senior level, but most interesting is the time you spent in the motherland. So tell folks about how that all came about and kind of the background that got you to that trip to Russia. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I talk about a lot on the show, but you know, I was told before the Olympics, you know, you work hard, you're going to win. And it's like, yeah, to a point. But if you're doing all the wrong stuff in training, like at some point you got to do the right training because no amount of hard work, no amount of studying hard on history is going to help you in a calculus exam, you know, and that's the easiest way to put it. And it's like when you're not doing the right things in training and your training isn't structured and focused like the other team they have a leg up on you and it's like i saw that and in 07 russia won seven out of eight weight classes they lost one match and it's like how are we going to outwork them to go win and and then in 08 you know we had one medal you know and barely anybody else did anything and we only won a handful of matches in beijing and so i was like i'm just going to go and see what they're doing because it's obviously not what we're doing and doping aside because i know americans have doped in the past and doping aside it's not the doping it's it's the training that they did and so i just went and submerged myself and and i threw away my ego because everybody's like well this is how i did it and in our sport just like the kids like we talked about it because that's a big thing that i'm on a kick right now is health of kids we get on this kick. We're like, no, this is how I did it. And it's like misery wants misery as company. And it's, they're like, well, I mean, you probably know, like a couple of weeks ago, I got, I threw this tournament director under the bus because multiple tournaments he ran this year are going past 11 o'clock at night with children. And people are like, well, I did it when I was a kid. So everybody should have to do it still to this day. It's like, well, I trained that way. I just hard work and put my nose to the <laughs> grindstone and I did it. We didn't have to have anything calculated or structured, but I did it. It's like, you should do it like I do it. And every coach gets in their program and they're like, this is the way I did it. And so you're going to do it the way I did it. And it's like, I had to throw all that out. And you know how big of a risk that is to be like, I'm going to throw everything out that I learned in my whole life. And I'm going to go all in on this new thing I just learned. And I did. And I produced champions at every level. And that I had to take my whole self out of it. It's not what I do. I mm. learned somebody else's training system and the people who actually go through it, the work that they do is why they're winning, mm. right? I'm structuring them and I'm giving them this overview, but I couldn't have been happier with that decision to throw everything I learned my whole life because I had some great coaches, right? But they only did, hey, this is what I did. So you're going to do what I did. And it's like, well, I'm just 
then it just becomes a lineage of like, you do this. I do you doing it because I did it. It's like, well, did that work out for you? Mm-hmm. Cause a lot of my coaches, it didn't work out for them. And they never questioned, Hey, why didn't it work out? Because at some point you got to be like, I can't, I, I couldn't have worked harder. I literally could have worked harder. You know, like I had a coach that, you know, like it's hard to throw people. I don't want to throw people under the bus, but McFarland lost twice in the NCAA finals. He believes if he worked harder, he would have won those matches. It's like, well, at what point he worked his ass off. Joe, Joe was one of the hardest working people I ever knew. Like as a coach, as an athlete, like you hear the stories, it's like you weren't going to work harder. So at some point you got to be like, well, it's not just working harder. What was I doing in that work that could have made me win those championships or the world title, you know? And it's like, I love the guy, but mm-hmm. that is like a lot of people's perspective. And, and, and it's, and you see it, you see, you see how people train teams and programs and they train and lead people with their own trauma. And it's, and it's disturbing for me as an outsider to watch and be like, oh, these people are reliving their own trauma of losing. And the only thing they've ever been told their whole life is, well, just work harder. And so they just start pushing their teams. And we got teams leading going into NCAAs. And this is the thing that drives me crazy. And it's perfect that this is the week of is that these coaches will push and push and push and push and push their athletes. Right. But then after the end of the season, they're like, well, did you work hard enough? It's like, well, if that's your only gauge of why I'm succeeding or not, you're not a good coach because I just pulled this up today at the jujitsu pro training I helped run. And it's like, no, in the art of war, the general who makes the most calculations wins. So I would love if I could give a questionnaire to every head coach and be like, how much time did you spend in these five positions this year, wrestling live and teaching upper body, head inside, single head outside, single fail attack, and top bottom, how much time did you actually spend just wrestling those positions and just teaching those positions? Because those are the five, five main positions in the whole sport of college wrestling. And so if you can't answer that question, how many minutes your kids wrestled over the last three months in those positions, if you can't answer how many times you've spent teaching those positions, don't ever expect your kids to win. And don't think they're just going to win because of hard work. Yeah, they're going to be able to maybe find success once in a blue moon because everybody else is training that crazy way. So nobody's actually calculating anything other than my guess, Penn State, maybe Iowa, but most coaches won't be able to give you any estimate of the amount of time they spent in the most important positions, let alone the offense, defense. If I just gave the offense, defense to some schools and I said, look, if you just did this part of the practice, your athletes will be better off for it. And they won't, people won't even do that. It's bonkers. How much of a, a college practice do you think is on autopilot for, for some of the coaches? Where it's just the this the same kind of same routine and, and and flow and not really focusing on certain areas. Oh, I'm guessing it's it's almost all of them, and the amount of college coaches that just throw their plan up after a bad weekend. They're like, ah, shit, we wrestled bad. We're gonna change everything. It's like you actually didn't know where I, we were going, did you? You were just playing it week by week. You know, you were just waiting for that bad week so you could rip it up and start over. You know, it's like, I would never do that. Like, I have my three months, like when I was training the, the highest level guys at the Cliff King Club, I had my three months leading up to the U.S. Open. I had it planned out. I didn't change one practice. I didn't care how they were doing because just like Kale, he's just like, I get it. That's why he doesn't even coach when he's coaching. He's mm-hmm. already done the work. He could just sit there, which is what I do when I coach my little kids. Like coaches think they're going to tell you what to do in the middle of the match. It's like, 
it's already a hectic environment with like the craziness of the fight. It's like, they're not just going to be like, Oh, he told me to grab the left wrist. It's like Kale already coached him how to do everything. He coached her mindset. He coached her technique. It's you don't need to coach the kid while they're on the mat. And it's like, you see those coaches just screaming and screaming. And then the ones who are like attack, you're losing attack. It's like, well, when was the last time you actually taught them how to attack when they're losing and like their mindset of that. And it's like, and then they just, when they lose and they're not doing what they're supposed to, the coaches are frustrated. Oh, like, it's like, that's on you. You're frustrated with yourself, not on your own athlete because you didn't train them well enough to do and have the mindset. And that's why Iowa wins. Like, I don't agree with all the way Iowa trains, but at least they train with the mindset of like, this is the Iowa style. This is what we do. This is how we win matches. And that's why they're so successful at winning match. They don't win matches because of their technique, right? Tom and Terry were unbelievable technical wrestlers, but Iowa right now is not winning matches because of their technique and their offensive mindset. They're mm-hmm. winning matches because of the, they, they believe that the Iowa style could at least keep it close enough to keep them in the matches and that they don't typically lose those because they're tough enough. In case in point, look at the Okie state match. They were up, the first five matches with less than a minute left with like a one point lead on all five of them in the Iowa style one. Right. That was a crazy, that was a, that was a crazy duel me in terms of just the, uh, they just kind of rolled them in that one. Yeah. I mean, Oklahoma state couldn't get anything off and they're one of the people and same with Iowa. Like if I gave my offense defense live attack battles to them, like both those schools would six, like, take off like it would help their wrestling immensely i could give those two programs a five minute battle you know five one minute battles and their live wrestling their wrestling would take off through the roof and this is based on so as we mentioned you spent a year living in russia in osetia which is one of the the regions there that's that's a hotbed you know in terms of wrestling worldwide it's just amazing the kind of olympians and, and medalists they produce so what do you think is like would be shocking to Americans to see like some of the big differences of like how a practice is structured and how development is structured? Well, they never talk about intensity, right? So like I have the the 12 year old kid that I told you about earlier, like I have a group of those kids, right? And their coaches, they would come in and, and they would be like, okay, we're drilling. It's like they tried a hundred miles an hour. They, they don't do anything right. And they're like, well, no, no, this is what are my, all the coaches want. It's like, we don't, Pay, we don't pay focus to the small details. We're just like, do it hard, do it fast, do it long, and continue to do that day in and day out. And it's like, we don't have a structure, literally. Like, you could go to NCAAs, and every team is going to be doing something completely different for that first-round warm-up. And kids within on teams, within the same team, are going to be doing different routines. It's like, how did you just train a college-age kid to go through the whole season, but yet you're going to have two different warm-up routines for maybe three or four or five different warm-up routines that five different kids are like, okay, this is how I warm up for a match. This is how I warm up for a match. It's like in Russia, they're like, no, 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 no. This is how we all warm up. And when you're done, you're ready. You don't need anything else. This is it, right? They develop a routine. And it's so fun. I had two kids that went to the Tulsa duels last weekend and they were seventh graders like 13 years old and they were on a team from california i believe and that team had two teams like 35 athletes and the coach goes okay the day before the tournament okay we're going to do a warm-up and then we're going to run through a little practice 
So go ahead, start getting warmed up. Coaches, okay, start getting warmed up. And they start jogging, and my kids are like, and they're seventh graders. I put them in my high school practice because I don't have kids big enough for them. And so my high school practice, I said, look, I can't train you guys because I overlapped them on purpose. So this is my room. So I have a thousand square foot of mat on the bottom, wow. a thousand square or 3000 square feet on top, the blue mats. And so I said, okay, well, this thousand square feet, my high school group could do the warm up on that mat to overlap. So at six, they do the warm up on their own. I trained them. They know everything, all 72 movements. And so anybody could lean it, lead it on any given day. And I'm ending with the little kids so that the high school kids could leave early, right? Because mm -hmm. you only have so much time in the gym. Well, my seventh graders go to this dual tournament and the coaches don't know how to do the warm up. They're just like, yeah, go do something, get warmed up for this. And then all the other kids know nothing. They don't know a routine. And my two kids were like, all right, we got this guy. Start jogging, jog backwards, jog circle to the right. So they run through the whole warm up. And then I had two other kids, that 12-year-old and another 12-year-old. They were on two other teams at the same thing. And the first day they were wrestling, parents started seeing my kids do the warm-up, the two 12-year-olds do the warm-up, just on their own before the mat. And the dad told me, he goes, the next day, before the second day of wrestling, I heard the other dad saying, hey, go, go just go follow that kid. He knows what he's doing. And it's 72 movements. Yeah, it's 72 different things. And he's 12. <laughs> but, but I let those 12 year olds go in my high school practice too. They do they have to do both if they're, they want right. to enter, but they know the warm up and they know what the, what the standard is to be like, Hey, I do this. I'm ready. Mm -hmm. Not a guess. And you don't, we have college coaches who can't even train their team to do a warm up that will automatically guarantee that they're prepared for a match. They mix it up every day. Someday they drill for a warm up. Someday they jog. And it's like the biggest thing is like, in the U.S., that would throw people off is like again, it's the intensity. In Russia, you just jog and you know move. Like in the U.S., they're like, we're gonna burn our lungs out to get ready for this practice. Like, what does that even mean? As a coach, you don't even know what burning your lungs out means. Is there a scientific reason why you do that? There's no <laughs> scientific reason why you do that. But people are like, oh, there's cobwebs. And I'm like, <laughs> we gotta <laughs> burn the lungs out to be, to be able to wrestle later. It's like, what do you mean? You have to move. You don't even have to burn your lungs out. You don't. So in Russia, they wouldn't associate the word intensity with wrestling. No, it's a fight. It's a fight, but it's not like they're not like, oh, you got to you got to be intense. If you're not intense, you're not going to win. It's like, no, no. Theirs is like you have technique and you have your physical ability. If a match gets heated, it gets heated. You never have to question if somebody is physically fit enough and somebody wants to win enough, if they're going to be able to bring the intensity, if you have to question that, then something's really wrong with you. Mm. We have a terrible mindset. Like we have a good mindset because it creates champions out of um, attrition, right? But that's just like World War II when they had that little area in France that they called the meat grinder. Just like, we're going to put people in and we're going to cheer them up. And, but we got millions of people that we could just do this to. And it's like a couple of guys make it through. <laughs> that's the case in America. Right. So like, so I got kicked out of the, and we could bring this topic up, but I got kicked out of the Texas youth state tournament, not because I was yelling at anybody, not because I was yelling at an official coach or anybody or kid. I don't even coach when I sit at those tournaments. 
right? Because I coach them in the room and then I'll talk to them after. Well, I got kicked out because at three o'clock when the tournament was definitely not going to end on time, I asked them, hey, do you have safety procedures? These are children. When When is it safe to stop wrestling for the night? And they thought I was crazy. And then at 11 o'clock, this guy was watching what I was told were nine and 10 year olds. It could have been the tiniest 11 year olds, but they were like 60 pound kids, right? And they're wrestling at 11 o'clock at night. And I was like, why do you think this is safe to wrestle at 11 o'clock at night for kids this age? You didn't like my answer earlier. You didn't give me an answer earlier. He said, I, he straight up said, you go through safe sport to coach. I have no safety procedures that I have to follow to be a tournament director. None, zero. These kids are going to wrestle till 1145. So I had a 12 year old kid. And this is the craziest part about that day. I had a 12 year old kid. He wrestled in the very first round when that division started. Um, I'm actually tr at, right after this, I have a private with him. He, he's homeschooled. And he's going to Estonia next week for freestyle. But I tr he wrestled the first match at like 650. Right. And they mess his bracket up. And as soon as he walked off the mat, a bloody nose got hit in the face, like accidentally had a bloody nose, walked off the mat. They're calling him again. He walked off one mat, went to the other mat, wrestled back-to-back -back matches, zero time in between. And then he was the second last match. He won his state title at 1145. And it <laughs> would have been the last match, but because the kid he beat got to, had to wrestle for true second, the kid he beat at 1145 walked off the mat and wrestled a true second after he just lost in the finals. Well, that kid is also at the gym because he's also homeschooled and they're going to Estonia together. So I have these two kids and the, the feedback I got from people was like, your kids need to be tougher. It's like he wrestled back to back matches at 650. He won a state title at 1145. He's still 11. Tell me how I have to train someone to be tougher than that. Well, it wouldn't be. It's surprising. I had, I did hear about this, this incident and um, it's surprising to me that it's that they can't expect the demand of kids to come in. My only problem with how Texas they take money, they take them, they know the formula, but they keep taking money and they keep pushing the boundary. But what I'm like, saying is it should be more. like a qualifier. Like you, have, you should have like regionals around the state and then sectionals. Correct. And Correct. then, but, but the wrestling mindset is more is better. More is always better. More training is better. More intensity is better. So, Hey, why don't we get a thousand, 2000 kids? And it's not even that they get barely a thousand kids, but then they have double entries and they're like, Hey, we're breaking records. It's like, no, you're breaking records because you're giving people the opportunity to win multiple state titles. It's like, this now is you're watering it down. So, this yeah, is my other problem. The, no, it should be a small bracket. It should be a very elite small bracket. And there should be, there should be like, you should have respect for people's times. Be like, hey, this is our sessions. And and I immediately, and this is what these people at Texas didn't know, is they're like, oh, this guy, we kicked him out. He's not going to do it. I was driving to Colorado to go snowboarding immediately after. So I, I made a pit stop in Colorado Springs. And Pete Isaiah, the head of events for USA Wrestling, Pete, how many times have you had an event? He runs all the national tournaments. Pete, how many times have you had an event go past 11? One time. This guy did it at the state tournament in McKinney, he did in Fort Worth, like how, I, and these are the only ones I know, and this is just my region. So mm -hmm. you could just assume all these other regions are also having these problems in the state. And it's like, no, there's a formula to be able to do that. Right. And it's like, they just take money without, with knowing they're not going to be able to perform the service. And then they just groom you into thinking like, no, this is normal. All wrestling tournaments should end at 11 or 12 o'clock at night. It's like, absolutely not. That's not normal. And now I'm in the process of working with Tony Black, the membership, Pete, and hesitantly Rich, 
uh, Bender on getting a national stop time, right? Like certain kids at certain ages shouldn't be able to wrestle past certain times of the night. And if like you see like it's coming up to that, it's like, okay, we're done with constellations. We can't get everybody in. We're just going to see who the winner is. They're like, oh, well, we can't do that. Only only the losers of the semis are going to be able to wrestle back for the third. Like, yeah, do, you got to have certain things in a place to be like, okay, yeah, we could finish out. We could get to the champion. But at some point, the tournament directors have to be held accountable for taking people's money and not being able to give them the service because it's an easy calculation. Participants, number of mats, number of officials. Mm-hmm. Calculate yeah. it. Everybody else knows how to run an event. And like... uh like I was saying earlier, to me, if it's a state tournament, you shouldn't be able to just sign up. You have to qualify. To me, that sounds more just like a big open. But that aside, yeah, I've also heard it. It's the yeah. money grab. But they I've also a, heard. Novice, Ryan, they have a first year and then a first and second year. This is my problem. Know, like You shouldn't be able to enter in multiple divisions there. So I like that Texas has a rookie division or whatever it's called, like a first year division, an intermediate, then an advanced. You should not be able to wrestle in multiple divisions at the same tournament. That just seems Correct. counterintuitive to me. That's crazy. Correct. And then you have the girls who could do rookie, novice, novice girls, open girls. Some girls could do four events. Right, right. Definitely not prepared. How it's- are the youth tournaments in Russia? Well, they don't have a lot, but now I see that they're starting to mimic some American stuff. That's why they have younger, younger kids that they were promoting pre-COVID. I don't think they're still kind of promoting these kids, like that little Dagestani kid that they were like claiming was the next Sajulayev. Yeah. It's like, that's never been their MO. And I did go to one tournament there, like seventh and eighth graders. And that's like one of the first times they're competing. It was real sloppy, right? For seventh and eighth graders in the nation's best region and the world's best region of wrestling. But they don't compete a lot. You don't need to compete a lot. Right, like I have a mother here who she's like first year son. Well, he's got to wrestle. He doesn't know not to lock his hands. He's eight. So it's like, well, they're always the excuses. Well, if he doesn't learn it now, when's he gonna learn it? It's like because you're telling me he could learn not to lock his hands at eight, but if he delays competing till he's 12, he's he's just not gonna be able to learn that skill. Mm-hmm. We we make these excuses up in America, like. Well, they need to learn how to compete. It's like, what do you mean they need to learn how to compete? If you're physically ready and you know the sport and you want to compete, what do you need to learn to compete? You're ready. You're ready. You're ready for the fight. But we're like, no, we need to teach you how to fight when you're not ready. So when you're ready, you got that fight in you. It's like, no, that makes so many people quit and leave the sport. We're screwing ourselves is, is, is a business. Yeah, re- retention rates, I wonder what they are in wrestling. Terrible. 50% in USA Wrestling, pretty much national. National USA Wrestling, I think, has around 275, 300 members. They lose about half every year, and then they get a new half. Yeah. Do you imagine if we captured half, of, like 125, if we captured just 10% of that, right, of 125,000 people leaving every year? Right. Mm-hmm. That's 12,500 people. Right? If my math is correct over four years, that's 50,000 extra people that are sticking with the sport. Mm-hmm. Now you got 350,000. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting when you look at it like that, because there used to be a little bit of a, a badge of honor. We wore that we would drive people out. 
started with 30, but got them down to 15. These are the real killers. <laughs> so many people still have that mindset. So many high school coaches have that mindset. Man, I have a four-year-old girl who just quit gymnastics to join my wrestling team because her cousin does it. Little girl. And she does apps. The one day she didn't do anything. And her parents were like, hey, you got to do what coach tells you. And I was like, I went to the parent. Hey, bud, like, I don't care if she does it. She's she's out there having fun with her cousin. Mm-hmm. I was like, as she keeps coming back, that's what I need. If I force her to do something and she's like, I didn't want to do that. I don't want to do that. She's going to be like, well, I don't want to do wrestling anymore. That's maybe why she quit gymnastics. So it's like, it's okay if they just sit there. And I use my example with Kyle Massey all the time. Kyle Massey didn't do the circuit at the end of training ever, ever when I was coaching the Cliff King Wrestling Club. But he wasn't there to win. He was there to train with Kuhn. Mm-hmm. So am I going to make the guy who's just a training partner and who wants to learn and have fun to compete a couple of years before he gets a full-time job as a university coach? Do I have to force him as a 25-year-old to be like, Kyle, get your circuit in? It's like, no, he didn't want to do it. It's like, hey, it's okay. But I know his expectations. He wasn't lying to me, being like, hey, coach, I really want to win. But it's like, he was honest. He's like, I'm a training partner. I don't need to do those rope climbs. Mm-hmm. And so do you think it's that, that the Russian technique and, and skill level is, is so superior that when they get to cadet European championships by the time they're 15, 16, even though they've had far less matches than Americans, um, that the skill level is what keeps them even? Because, you know, you figure like a Bo Bassett, one of my favorites, by the time he got to the cadet worlds, he probably had had 1,500 matches, maybe less, maybe more, but probably 1,500 legit. And the guys he's wrestling from Russia, probably less than 50. Correct. And you could see that. The ki- and you could see why when they brought the cadets back, the Americans had the upper hand. Right. Mm-hmm. But you look at the senior, it's not the same way until just recently. Yeah. We got a great group of guys, but we don't have the depth they have. Re- case in point, David Taylor gets hurt. Who do we replace him with? Downey. That dude don't place. Mm-hmm. Right. Who at his David's weight in Russia? Right. So Sajulai was gone. They've had a couple guys, but you're replacing one with the other with the other and they're getting bronzes. They're not beating David, but you're replacing multiple people and they're still meddling. Mm-hmm. Not as Donnie, but they're meddling. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't have that. We don't have three, four, five guys in a weight that can meddle. At the young kids, we do for sure, because our young kids are primed and ready to go, at, especially at cadet. By the time juniors, you see it start slipping a little bit. By the time seniors, it starts slipping a little bit more. Granted, not now. We're in the highest point of American wrestling. But historically, you can see that. And it's crazy because if you look back at that 4 team, and generally anything from 97 through 2012 is considered kind of a, a down period for USA Wrestling if you look at just how things were going. Like it, by August of 03 excuse me, August of 04, heading into Athens, we hadn't had a world champion on the mat in like five years. Right. Right. Slay won after uh, Leopold testing. And I think the one before that might've been less sketches or. Yeah, 99, 99. Even the old one. That's what I was going to say. The, who's the guy who went to Patriots. Okay. Yeah. So, but the 04 team was good, you know, and then. Yeah. They had a I lot mean, of medals, but that a was lot of medals. Good. But that was an anomaly for for that era. Well, actually, 06 wasn't bad either. 
Oh, six. Yeah, they the last show. We had Zadok win. Zadok took second. Mm-hmm. Donnie took bronze. Sammy took bronze. Tali took fifth, maybe. But besides those two years, it was a rough, rough patch. Well, now we're seeing a lot of consistency. And do you think it's do you think it's the RTCs? Do you think kids wrestling freestyle younger? Like, what do you think's the big change from that two thousands era to now? Oh, for sure, it's the RTC. You have dedicated coaches. Right. I mean, before I went to Michigan, before I retired, there was no there was no dedicated coach for freestyle at any college. Yeah, like right? 2003, you graduate college. What kind of money opportunities are available for you to train freestyle? Nothing. It was, it was at Michigan only, right? Because I couldn't go to any other college. So you had to stay at your college you went to or you had to go to Colorado Springs. There wasn't a lot of money at all, right? So like the RTCs are bringing money in so more people are able to train or able to train longer they have sponsorships social media has made it easier for them to make money through products and mm-hmm. uh, services um easier for you to people to get a hold of you for camps like there's so many more things that have aided in that um i still don't think we have the depth because we don't have a systematic approach but we do have more resources than any other country we have more athletes than any other country except maybe india now um, and they're they're about to surpass us with resources. They're about to surpass us with coaching. They're about to surpass us with the system. And uh, in, India is going to be an interesting case because I, I honestly think within the next eight years, it's going to be U.S., India, and Russia probably is the top three consistent year after year. It is amazing to see a country say we're going to get behind this sport 100% whatever's needed it's needed and we're going to do it on a mass scale because they're they're obviously their population is tremendous yeah their population shoots so they need to entertain their people they need to give them something to do and they looked at all the other sports and they were like well you know we have this traditional style and once they saw some of those people leave the traditional style and have success internationally they're like oh we could do this and then after Shashil place in 12 there was a mass exodus from the villages to the cities. And like, that was right when I was retiring or sorry, Shashil place in 08, but I was helping them between 08 and 12 to get to Russia because they needed better coaching. Um, and so I helped the metal group, the steel company, who is one of their biggest sponsors and they have this huge Olympic program. And so I helped they're the head of that get hooked up with Osations and then they started buying Georgians and all these people to go coach for them. Um, you know, they actually asked me in 2000 to run the program for eight years and in 2024 or sorry, 2028 picked their team. They wanted me to be the cadet coach from 2020 to 2024 and then work my way to be picking their full team by 2028 originally when they took the phone call i thought they just wanted me to do their coach education i was like dude i can't move to india for eight years like <laughs> like i'm not just gonna go uproot my life i was like thank you for the offer i appreciate it but right um, can you imagine though having like a th- that kind of numbers at your disposal and carte blanche to to put in a system like that i guess that's your biggest gripe is that in the u.s it's the club in this part of town is doing it different than this part of town and there's no there's no uniformity and the city, let alone the state, let alone the country, you're saying in the one of the reasons Russia's been so good is that during the Soviet era, they put these coaches all throughout the country and they were teaching the same system to the same kids. And over time, there's symmetry and everyone knows kind of similar skills and it just creates more consistency. Well, yeah, but yes, 
as you're saying that though, like it, it just became blatantly obvious to me that it's not just the training, it's the actual mindset of combat, right? Like we have, we teach moves from start to finish and it's like, you're losing and you're like, okay, I got to shoot and I got to shoot a high crotch and I'm going to get it perfect. And I'm going to cut across to finish. And it's like, okay, no. And the Russian mindset is like, no, first step, you just got to attack and get to the damn legs. Okay. Once you're there, it's like, you think you're going to know what you, you could do, but when you attack, you're not going to be in the exact place where you thought you are. So then you just get there. And then when you get there, you're going to know what to do when you get there. It's like, we have these perceived notions in our mind that we have to have things play out they do things in stages, right? And it's a lot easier to manage and calculate a match when you do things in stages instead of when you do things from start to finish. And that, that mindset is a big difference, like you said. Because I remember you before compared to like more like problem solving versus like slamming your head against the wall. Well, yeah, but just think about what I said with the offense defense, right? So think about think about if you just taught the mindset of offense defense, right? Like, if you're wrestling, we have this mindset in America, attack, 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 attack. It's like never once are these coaches being like, hey, just wait, counterattack. Like, hey, see what they have. Wait, let them make the mistake, counterattack, score on them. Okay, score, 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 then wait, then let them come back, then counterattack. You know, it's like they use these strategies of offense and defense to manage and manipulate these matches where in America it's, it's so easy when they get to the highest level, you're like, they're just going to attack you. So you have a Russian wrestling an American nine times out of 10. They're like, okay, I, I, I'll just play defense right now. And then I'll just get to counterattack because I know the Americans just going to attack me and they're going to attack me just blindly, just because they, they need to attack. They need to be attacking because they need to be doing something or they think they're stalling. And it's like, no, it's like you could lay traps and lay, like you could use your strategies and tactics to, manipulate the pace and the outcome of the match because it's like yeah the real wrestling is when you get to the positions right they are by far superior once they get to the positions because of the amount of time that they've actually spent in the positions compared to the americans americans we wrestle more more long goes we don't do as much situations if any mm -hmm. at all and so it's like one they have the confidence when they get to the position they're going to win but it's what leads up into the position is like, no, we force things and we force action and we are only one-sided. So think about when you're wrestling somebody, you're like, Hey, they don't know how to counterattack. They're only going to attack you. How easy is it to, to, to wrestle that match? And you're like, well, I'm going to wrestle Ryan. He's just going to attack, attack, attack. That's, and that's why they used to pick off Metcalf. They're like, that dude ain't waiting for us to attack the counter. He's yeah. going to, you know, rain or shine. He's going to show up to that gym and be like, I am freaking attacking from start to finish and they're just like okay i'll just counterattack you the whole time and i'll pick you apart because it's, when you're not looking for offense it's so easy to see things open up defensively i feel like, like it's almost like an ego thing as you're saying it and like that's not a manly way to win a match by just sitting back waiting that's a weird way to look at it but that's that is like a weird um art of it's not as bad as jujitsu sitting on your ass but I get what you're saying. Bro, that is br some of the, I do like jujitsu, but watching some of those goes, it's like, Oh my no, God. It's like, bro. you really think you're going to like beat a guy by, by just conceding and sitting on your ass. Like that's not a good mindset, bud. Like I try to talk all the guys that I train to, Hey, don't sit, man. Hey, don't be that guy. <laughs> oh, like, that's what jujitsu. It's like, no, but that's what losers do. <laughs> you know, like, 
baiting somebody into attacking you to strategically counterattack is not the same thing. Right. Conceding the fight on the feet is a bad thing for all the jujitsu people out there. Terrible. Terrible for the sport. It's it's it is funny because there is a little bit of overlap between wrestling and jujitsu, but not that much. And I thought there was, you know, I first started this podcast. I thought there'd be way more overlap between UFC fans and wrestling fans. And there are some wrestling fans who are UFC fans, but also not nearly as much as I thought. Yeah, there's not a big connection there. I mean, people like to fight, but you got to know the sport. And, and wrestling, we don't do ourselves justice because we pushed all those people out because they weren't tough enough. Even though they still like combat sport, they were five. They just didn't understand it. They're like, well, I'm out. I'm not going to do this. Now, are you going to NCAA? You are going to NCAAs. And before we transition into a different direction, tell me about the room you're sitting in and the club you're at and kind of how this all came about. That's a sweet facility. Is that a sauna behind you? Yeah, huge, like 20-person sauna. Um, So, yeah, it's crazy, man. So when I left Michigan – there's all these things that happened in my life, you know, like I had a falling out with the Michigan staff. I had a terrible divorce. Um, and so everything fell apart and I just left and I, I went back to Cleveland for the first time in 20 years and I was doing web development and I was like, I'm done with this sport. Screw it. You know, like I've, I've had too much stuff happen to me. I was like, nobody cares. And I'm just like, I'm done. And, uh, Novogratz told me you're not done Jeff Marsh told me you're not done and they were talking to Senna behind the scenes right and that's how I ended up getting hooked up so uh Senna was looking for someone to help him spark, spark combat with his kids which by the way his son just placed that national press as a freshman after wrestling all year at 113 he got bumped out of the lineup and ended up on 120 in place which is unreal um super proud of that kid I like Highland Prep yeah, Charlie DeSena, he's going to be a hammer. Um, but I wow. did a lot of good things with him. I told him no, like he wasn't allowed to train certain times because he didn't like it. And when you tell a kid no and you're like, well, freestyle, you're too young. It's like it light a little fire up in his ass. But so I, I, I was with them for like almost two years and they were going down to Lake Highland. He was moving all of his businesses because Boston was still like, Everything was closed and mass and nobody went to work. And so February last year, so it's 23. So February 22, I go down and I start helping out at Lake Highland right before national props. And they're like, dude, we want you to coach here. Like Mike Palazzo, Donnie Simpson. And so I started running their training. I was running their training from February to May. And I was like, all right, well, if you guys want me to do this full time, and I'm traveling like I never thought I was going to be traveling like this again. So like we tried to get the funding and all that stuff to get me there full time. A couple other things fell through and I told them I would go to the U S open and they, they asked me to go two weeks later to Fort Worth for the women's nationals. Cause they have a girl, Mary Manis, and she ended up taking second last year. And so I ended up going down with her and Sarah McLaughlin from Boston. And so I flew with Sarah and her dad. I went to Boston to go because they were still Spartan stuff at the time closing up. So I went to Boston after the US Open. I flew from Vegas to Boston. And then I flew with Sarah, who actually just won the postseason USA folk style nationals. Um, she's doing really well. Um, she was, I think, 106 pound champion for the girls, 16U. But anyway, so I fly with her and her dad. And then I meet Mary and her dad or her mom at the event. And I'm coaching both girls. 
And I'm like, and I run into Steve Silver and I was like talking to Steve. I'm like, Hey Steve, like, I know you're from around here. I was like, I gotta, you know, just talking to him. I was like, you know, I gotta get down to Austin for a week. Cause after this event, I got to go promote the Spartan race down there. They got a new trail thing and they want me to be the boots on the ground and, and get some stuff going. I was like, is there a train? Do I fly? He's like, no, I'll take my truck. I got extra car, you know, go down there. He's like, so where are you at now? And I was telling him, I was like, this is my last event. He goes, man, I just built a, he goes, one of my first warehouses for the furniture. Um, I just converted into a wrestling room. It's not done yet. He goes, but I converted it, hired Mike Ironman. He came down from Missouri, was down here for six weeks, ended up not liking it, went back to Missouri. The, the building kind of sat vacant from like February to March. He's like, when you come back from Austin, why don't you check it out for a week? You could drain my grandkids. Cause now he's got, cause he, Steve had Kenny and Kendall at one point coaching his kids mm-hmm. and Bishop Lynch for like 10 years. They were down here and it made this area really good in wrestling. So now he's got 21 grandkids and he's looking to restart a, a club. And he's also now the women's team leader for the next six years or five years now until 2028. Mm-hmm. Um, and so He's like, hey, I need a coach. He's like, the job's yours. He's like, I'll give you your salary, benefits. The whole business part is yours for the memberships and um, privates. And so, like, I came down here for three days to coach at a tournament, and I never left. Right? I mean, obviously, I went to Austin. I traveled, you know, a little bit here and there. But, like, I came down here for three days and ended up taking a job. And now I'm living here. I love it. Like, his family's amazing his siblings and all his grandkids are just great people and the people that they're bringing to the club and surrounding themselves with are awesome so so yeah so i i went from not knowing what i was going to do after one event being like man like i kind of got to figure it out because i got back into wrestling i didn't know what i was going to do and then now i have my own facility I train, I got Will Durkey from Northwestern set me up with some jujitsu guys and I was training with them. And now they're like, Hey, could you help structure our training and, and get us, you know, cause I don't need to know all jujitsu. I can structure the training well enough um, where I could give them guidance and they could get, do the nuts and bolts of the technique, but I can put them in all the right situations and guide them through the training to get them ready for the ADCC trials in uh, October. So I got a, great group of black belts that I train some other, you know, lower belts that are awesome. And then I have the high school and little kids. So it's like, I still have the adults. I get to train. I train little kids, high school kids. It's awesome, man. Dude, I got to get down there and see the facilities. It looks amazing. Yeah. And, and it's awesome too, because you also had Barwis on the podcast and just with him, he trains people who have been paralyzed, who, who are learning to walk again, professional athletes, hundreds of them a year. Um, high-level college athletes, high school athletes, mm-hmm. little kids, transparents, all in the same facility because he's like, he wants all of them to see what all the other people are doing to inspire each other. And um, I created the same way. They, they didn't want the second set of mats here. They're like, okay, we're going to get weights and bikes and this and that. I was like, never is there going to be a bike in my room. Never. I'm never going to put up a kid on a bike and make a condition. I do that in wrestling. So I, I was like, no, I want these extra mats that you guys have. And so we kept these extra mats. I put them down. I put those gladiator walls, like those uh, stairs. I put the gladiator walls, the bands, I have two ropes. I'm getting two more ropes, four TRX to hang from the ceiling for the rings. And I'm going to get some kettlebells, um, very light, but kettlebells, um, 
maces and clubs just for the shoulders, um, some a couple of things for the core, like bow shoot balls and med balls. Um, but no just, bikes, though? No bikes. No, heck no. Get out of here. No bikes, no weight equipment other than the kettlebells. Um, it's just going to be functional. So my my theory was the Barris theory. The first hour of practice before the high school kids do their warm up, because the kids start at five to six thirty. So between five and six, the thousand square feet of mat is empty. I have two year olds, three year olds, four year olds, five year olds playing on the mats. They're not ready for practice. They're playing with the dodgeballs. They're climbing the ropes. They're swinging on the ropes. They're climbing the the, the little ladder wall. I had a little two-year-old. I'm filming one day just because I was like, this is amazing. His dad's over talking. I'm filming the whole room of all the chaos. And it would make certain coaches crazy. But I'm like, no, this is what I want. I signed up for this. I got a two-year-old climbing the wall by himself, looking around like, should I be doing this? I got the four-year-old like swinging on the ropes. And so the parents were like, that's really what you want. I'm like, yes. Now I got dads doing jujitsu down there while their kids are training. Um, you got a whole and ecosystem going. Amazing. I want mothers to start working out. I want the dads to work out. I want the kids to play. I want the other kids to train on the main mats. And, and so it's like I built this whole thing and it just melted my heart. So like one of Steve's granddaughters, four years old. Right. And this is amazing. The learning. And so four years old, she was coming in here with her siblings. Right. Eight and six. And then she's four sisters, too. And so just for her and her sister, because in the early days we had, they didn't have a lot of people coming. So I, I tied a knot on the rope so they could swing on the bottom, right? Like some people are like, why are you just letting them swing? It's like, I don't care if they're using the workout equipment to play. Mm-hmm. That's their first step. You learn how to play, you learn how to do, then you learn what it's used for. And so she's swinging on the ropes, swinging on the ropes. After practice, I always make my kids do a circuit. But again, I've told you before, I don't make them do it. I'd say, Hey, do 50 burpees, three rope climbs or do push-ups, squats, sit-ups. I'll make them do something little, but I always add three rope climbs. So she plays on the ropes for the first hour and 15 minutes. When the kids go do the circuit, she gets bumped off. Not all the kids climb the ropes, but she's sitting right by the ropes and she's watching these kids climb the ropes from September, October, November, December. What do you want for Christmas, Vivian? Oh, I want a rope. How about you, Violet? I want a rope. <laughs> the parents are like Andy. They just asked for two ropes for Christmas, so they got two <laughs> ropes for Christmas outside. They hang them, hung them up on a tree. So now they have a rope at home. Now she's playing on a rope. Now it's December. Now January. Now in January, she's like, maybe I could. I've watched kids climb this for the last four or five months. Out of the blue, she climbs it on her own one day. She's just watching. Oh, I could do this. Just climbs the rope on her own. No knots. No nothing. You know, no support, just, but I could do it now. And I'm wow. like, wait, what? And then she, as soon as she climbed the rope, the next day she put a pair of shoes on and she went onto the main mat. I'm like, that's how it's done, folks. That's how you do it. You let them play. You let them see. You let them watch. You let them observe. Then they go on the mat. So I have five-year-old kids. Their parents are like, no, you got to finish practice. I'm like, no, if they're not ready, just go let them play with their siblings on the other mat. Because mm-hmm. in, they could go up just how I could take you know, my training system, you have your oxidative glycogen and phosphogen intensities. Well, if you get hurt, yeah, you bring it down to the oxidative. Well, if they're little kids, not mentally ready or for practice, or they need a break, it's like, jump back, jump down a level, go play with Mm -hmm. the little kids. You can always jump back up. You're not missing anything. You're playing, you're around it. You're, you're feeling it. You feel the energy. 
And it's like that just melted my heart to have a little four-year-old girl. And and now her and they do she does the warm-up. She doesn't do practice. She'll do the warm-up and then she'll leave because it's an easy, fun thing for them to do. Mm-hmm. But but she's on the mat. And that's all that matters is you got one more person on the mat because you created an environment that was open and fun and let people do things on their own term and you didn't force them to do it. And now that little girl, she's going to end up being a wrestler and she's going to love it. Right. And I'm going to be able to train her and I'm never going to make her do things she doesn't want to do. And I'm never going to like force her and push her. And it's like, yeah, at high school. Yes. Cause that, at that point you're telling me, Hey, I need somebody to push me. It's like, that's appropriate. Right. But I'm, as a child, I'm going to let them be like, Hey, do what you want. Like I'm here to help you push past your fears. If you need help, but I'm not going to force you to do it. Mm-hmm. That's why I have the room the way I have it. It's amazing. And I get these, I get pushback because people see I got kicked out of that Texas state tournament. They're like, that dude's an asshole. That dude's bad for the sport. This and that. It's like, if they only saw me, I don't coach and scream and yell in the corners. Obviously I've done that at the highest level, but you're motivating people who are making Olympic teams are a little different than a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. I don't yell and scream at little kids. I don't have an, I don't make them do things for time and intensity. I make them do things right to learn the process, to learn what it takes. And I make them say a pledge. Honestly, like these parents, Steve's fam, Steve's kids, friends who they're bringing around to these kids, they're not wrestling families, but they don't understand the difference between my program and every other program. Every day, their kids say a pledge. Every single day, they say a pledge to promise to learn one thing, leave better than they started, help somebody else do the same and have fun doing it. Could you imagine like that is how I run a program. People think I'm nuts, but I run a program that has this growth mindset and a thing where you give back to others and, and it's inclusive and you're trying to build people up, right? Other programs, you're like, hey, we started with 30, we're down to 13. They pride themselves. It's like, man, I, are you kidding me? Like, I want to be the guy that said, I started in September with eight kids. Now I got 20 kids coming consistently at the little kids. And throughout the week, it's probably closer to like 30, 35 kids coming in and out because they don't come every day. You well, and they it. actually like it, right? It's like, um, it just it just reminds me of, I've said this recently, but Adam Terrapelli said his goal is like for his kids to want to go to the NCS with their dad when they're 25 because they actually yeah. enjoyed it. I, that's, yeah. I mean, that's another topic, but it's like that whole thing. It's like, no, they definitely enjoy it. And, and part of that, the same mother who was like, well, When's my kid going to not learn how to lock his hands? Well, if he doesn't compete now, he's he's going to lose interest. Why is he training? It's like he's eight. He doesn't know what training is. And this same kid wants to come to practice first because he also loves soccer. We always start with soccer. So he wants to be the first one in the room so he can be the first one playing soccer. Then when I give them to go do their circuit, he finishes his circuit. So like around 6.30, 6.35, 40, finishes his circuit. And then him and the other boys are playing soccer and dodgeball. And he's there and for another hour playing on the mats where the high school kids are now. Now I'm training high school kids. And his mom doesn't have a sibling, doesn't have a child in that high school group. And she's like, hey, Declan, we got to go. Declan, we got to go. Declan, come on. Declan, we got to go. Declan, it's dinner. We got to go. Declan, five, four, Declan, this is an hour after practice. And Declan, we got to go five, four. And then she's like, oh, he's going to lose interest if he's not competing. I'm like, what part of watching him every day, not wanting to leave this room is, is you thinking he's going to lose interest. 
You can't get, you can't pry him out of here. The one day she had to go pick him up in a fireman's carry because she wrestled herself. She, <laughs> she picked him up in a fireman's carry, was holding his arms. She's like, no, I'm not leaving. I'm playing. And she's That's holding. awesome. Well, but it's cool that you're like, lose interest. it's cool that you, one, had the courage to go to Russia for a year. Two, that you've like internalized it and created this system. I know you and Andy, um, you and Jake for a long time. And and you've taken it now and, and you're still in it. And, you know, it's Spartan. And now with, with Steve, who Steve Silver, the man, the best. He's uh, I'm so glad I got to know him through you and through this uh, through this piece we're doing. Um, any last words? No, that's it. You know, like my biggest thing now is like hoping, you know, that now I'm in it and I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I just want to make the safe the sport even safer for children. Um, you know, we didn't get to talk about it a lot, but you know, I don't, I, I haven't really told a lot of people, but I'm in therapy. I reached out to Mike Novogratz cause he, uh, he, he does some work in therapy and psychedelic therapy, talk therapy. And he set me up with, uh, a talk therapist who deals with childhood trauma. And, uh, he set me up with people to do psychedelics and MDMA therapy because, you know, you could look at me and be like, wow, Andy used the sport and got a lot out of it, which I did, but I'm traumatized by the sport. Like, I hate youth events. I want, like, my dad didn't know what to do. He did everything out of love, but my dad was an asshole. He, every single, like, it was a joke when I was a kid in my family, like, Andy's dad got kicked out of another tournament. You know, after Texas, people were like, oh, just like your dad, you're getting kicked out of tournaments. I'm like, yeah, but I didn't yell at my kid. I didn't yell at the official. I didn't yell. I questioned them on the safety of children. And they're like, well, we were just joking. I'm like, yeah, but everybody made a joke about it, right? Like in today's world, my dad would be banned from every organization. He wouldn't have been able to coach me anywhere because of like how bad he was because he didn't understand it. And so he's yelling at me, yelling at the other coach, yelling at the official every single match. I have this complex. I'm, I'm never good enough for anything, right? So I want to make this sport better for kids. I don't think you should be allowed to coach children. I think it should be silent. It's already chaos and they don't know the sport, right? So I want to do things to set a hard stop time. So kids aren't wrestling at 11 o'clock at night. So they're not losing a state championship at 11 o'clock at night. And they don't know how to deal with their emotions. And they don't know how to deal with the craziness of all the people yelling. And you go to a wrestling tournament. It's like, that's not how we get people in the sport. You don't need to be crazy at five, six, seven, eight, nine years old. You don't have to be crazy at 10, 11 years old. Once you get to middle school, junior high, yeah, you can start learning sport competing. Yeah, you can start competing in high school. But we have these minds and we have, you know, we want to have this wrestling mindset, but we have fragile minds, right? And it's like, you don't realize the impact of what you're having on a child when you're yelling at them and you you, you make them feel like they're not good enough. And I had that kid tell me he was not, he's not good enough for college. It's like, man, that's me. You know, that's me as a kid and I see his dad and I'm trying to work with his dad. I'm trying to work with him to be like, look, we don't need this mindset. We mm -hmm. don't need these expectations. I, and I told the dad, just like Terry Pye, I said, I need you to have a relationship with your dad. I didn't have a great relationship with my dad after college and after the Olympics, right? He just passed away and it's sad, right? But he never, he never worked on himself and he never, he never brought it up. Right. And it's like, how do you bring it up? Because it's like my whole family's proud of, the, of what they did and what I accomplished because they were able to provide for me and give me all the opportunity for college, Olympics, international and like my whole career. It's like, yeah, it did a lot for me. But at the same time, it messed me up a lot. Right. It's like and, and, and you know, honestly, it's ruined two marriages. 
right? Because I because I didn't know how to be in, in, in a loving relationship without having that expectation of I'm never good enough, right? Because when you're a child and you have that father and nothing you ever do is good enough on the map because every time you go out there, he's yelling, he's upset, he's upset at you, he's upset at the official, he's upset at the other coach. Everything is something out of your control. It's like, no, look, I just did what I did. Just love me, right? And so I don't know how to be in those relationships and it's terrible, but we have a big problem in our sport with mental health and we have a big problem with people perpetuating their mental health onto the next generations of people. I know coaches that definitely need therapy at the college level and definitely take things out on their own kids, not the, their kids, but the kids that they coach. They take it out on them. And they put them through the same hell that they went through because they, they've they never had to internalize and be like, look, that wasn't good for me and it's not good for these people. Because we think we're tough and we have to be tough and we have to chew each other up and spit them out and just uh, grind it. And it's like, no, man, like we need relationships with our parents and we need to be sane in this sport and we need things to be safe for the kids because that's the only way the sport flourishes and that's the only way the sport becomes mainstream because as is, it's never going to be mainstream because it's too hard too hard for people, but it can be right. But you have to have the mindset of like, Hey, it's not about the sport being hard. It's about teaching the sport. It's not about intensity. It's about teaching it. It's about giving people a skill set. It's about giving, getting people to do things that they've never thought they were going to be able to do in their life. And then when they want to compete, then it's about pushing them and, and, and challenging them. Mm-hmm. We need to introduce people. We need to have a safe sport for children, not just on the coach's side, but on the competition side. Almost like how jiu-jitsu structures it as self-defense. Like there's a millions of people who do jiu-jitsu that never compete in a tournament, but there's Correct. very few wrestlers that wrestle and don't compete in a tournament. Correct. It could be the opposite though, right? It could be like a, like there's like a, a subset of kids that they just like doing it because they're they're in good shape and they're able to defend themselves and they have some confidence with them. At one novice compete. I wouldn't let them. None of my kids. I'm like, don't. I told the parents I'm not coaching them at local tournaments. I went to the Fort Worth tournament because there's a regional tournament and I went to the state tournament because I got a couple other kids, like the middle school kids that I trained, like the seventh, eighth graders. I went mm-hmm. to coach them, right? I had, I had a couple 11, 12 year olds, but they were already in a system of competing. I would never take my kids at eight and be like, Hey, we're going to Tulsa. We're doing this. I'm teaching you skill sets. I'm going to make you the best wrestler. And you know, like everybody wants to forget like Zach Thompson, who I went to high school with, um, he didn't start wrestling till high school. He wrestled four years at St. Ed's and then ended up second in the country at Iowa State, two-time All-American. It's like, come on. And mm-hmm. he lost in the blood round to Baring, who beat him the year before in the finals, his senior year. He could have been three-time All-American. Him and Baring end up losing. They placed each other in the blood round. They were in the finals the year before. It's like, come on. Dude never wrestled before. It's like, you don't need it. You That's don't crazy. Need it. Right? That's it's like, crazy. Brian Piccolo is another example of that, man. He didn't wrestle until, until, uh, like third year of college. Um, yeah, Michigan state. I'm thinking of, uh, I think it's, yeah, Brian Piccolo, um, his kids, I get his kid confused, his kids at Oklahoma. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think it's all just, it's good stuff to think about and it's, it's a reframe from how, how, you know, at least 20 years ago, I think back, man, when I was going through, I was a senior in high school in 07. So I've been realizing lately that all my memories are almost 20 years old. <laughs> my <laughs> kids wrestling. Cause I had a uh, Donovan Panona club coach on from Georgia who runs level up. And he's explaining to me the, the concept of doubling up. And I don't remember anyone ever 
entering two divisions or two weight classes. That was not a thing when I was I going through it. See, I, I we did. never did that in Illinois. That was not a thing. Ten, you're nine and ten, and eleven and twelve. I don't what know if it was just an Illinois thing, but no one did that, and I, I'm glad. But no one, I don't ever remember anyone ever doing that. Maybe if you were a stud, you're like, let's say you're twelve, but you're a killer. Maybe you wrestled thirteen and fourteen, but you're only wrestling thirteen and fourteen. You're not doing double entries. Right. No, Which, it's stupid. It's stupid. Like looking, back, I wouldn't recommend it. No, looking back, it's so dumb. Like I would definitely never recommend that. It's. It yeah, seems it, a little excessive. Like it's just yeah, like. Yeah. Well, well, that's also the whole point too. Like with my training system, every day we get prepared to wrestle one match. You get one match to start the tournament. You get one match in a tournament. You got to be ready for your one match in the American system. They're like, Hey, we're going to wrestle six matches today. So if you don't wrestle good in your first match, you get a second match. Oh, you don't wrestle good there. You get a third match. You get a, you get a fourth and fifth match. If you, uh, if you don't wrestle good in your first five matches, we'll give you a six one today. And if you wrestle good there, you can leave practice feeling great about yourself. Bro. <laughs> it's like how many do-overs do we get in america i was reading a an article from the 28 2008 olympic camp the greco team and it was like a day in the day in the life and for that practice that day they did an hour and a half grind match and i'm thinking like i bet the russian greco team is wrestling a six minute match and that's it i bet they're not wrestling an hour and a half match <laughs> no no and they spent so much time in all the real positions we're like you wrestle for an hour and a half. How many of uh, just hand fighting? It's like, get out of here. That's why we can't. <laughs> That's why last year at the Greco trials, I saw a guy hand fight and hand fight and hand fight and got the double unders, got his hands locked. and was like, I actually don't want to be here. And he let go. <laughs> he let go and backed out. And I was like, what was he hand fighting for? He was literally hand fighting the hand fight because if he was hand fighting to get to the position, he had an amazing position with double over unders. And he just let it go. He was like, nah, I'm good. I don't need to actually wrestle in a position. I just wanted to fight. Well, man, I'm hoping you put this stuff down on video for those of us who aren't in uh, aren't in Texas. But until then, man, well, guess we'll just have to get, get down to Texas and see the magic you got going. Tell Steve Silver I give him my best, man. And uh, I appreciate you sharing all, all of this, uh, just your thoughts on, on youth development and how you approach it differently, man. It's exciting. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm an anomaly. You know, people think I'm an asshole. I ruffle feathers, but I do it all for the love of the sport and for other kids. I've never done this to make myself wealthy. Bro, since I've met you, you've only introduced me to people and helped wrestling people get more in touch. So I don't I don't I don't see how it could be any other way, man. Um so I, I just want to say thanks, uh thanks for coming on. And it's uh, you know, the mental health stuff you talked about at the end, it's right up the alley with Chance Marsteller, man. That that whole, I just went down that rabbit hole last week. And I think there's a lot more mental health problems in wrestling than we have any, not that we have an idea that we talk about though. Like, yeah. And a lot of it, which is really sad is, is the mental health problems that lead to substance abuse problems. And those people just get chewed up in our sport. And it's like, they become a circus show and it's like, man, lepers like outskirts. Yeah. I mean, well, no, they, they literally become court jesters, you know, in the sport. And it's like, you, you don't want to see that. And you just want people to be healthy. And, uh, you know, I, I'm obviously on my own mental health journey. And it sucks um, because it's lonely. But I think the sport needs more of it. And I would love to come back on and talk more about. Yes, we'll do that. that. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's a lot of stigmas around it. And it's it's important to break some of those down. Oh, for sure. Yeah, especially in wrestling. They're like, you, you're in talk therapy? It's like, yeah man like i was tortured as a child 
<laughs> right. Like that, right. That was a t- all of it. I'd love to have you back on to talk about that stuff. Yeah. And then part of it too, wasn't just that, but I was abused by a teacher at the same time at like, you know, around eight years old. And it's like, it wasn't good. You know, right. so it's like the whole mind at, when it's forming the most is so off key. And then it's like you float through life and, and then you're in trouble. But I feel you on a, on a lot of that stuff, man. And I, I know a lot of people who, who, you know, not just wrestlers, but that's what we're thinking about here, who, who struggle with that stuff even now. Well, enjoy practice, and we'll talk to you soon, brother. Here's my killers. Say hi. What's up, guys? You guys are, you guys are on Wrestling Changed My Life. <laughs> right? Here's the state champ who won at 1145. Here's his partner who ended up going back-to-back matches at 1145 for True Second. Holler, Fernando, Evan, Jackson. Love it. Love it. What's up, gentlemen? Good luck to you all today. All right. and Thank is, you, man. Black Friday, so go follow him. Yeah. Let's go. All right. See you, Ryan. All right, brother. Peace. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wrestling Changed My Life with Andy Rovat. If you want to support this show, you can do a couple things. Subscribe to the show, leave us a rating, leave us a review, and support our sponsors, Beat the Street Chicago and Quant Wrestling. That's it, folks. We'll see you later this week with a new episode of Wrestling Changed My Life. Peace.